Well, thank you, ladies, for bringing uh, the drama of Luke to such an excellent close. I should have mentioned earlier that I received a WhatsApp from our brother Elijah last night, who is in Pretoria this weekend. Uh, He's been asked to preach uh, to, I think, two different fellowships. Anyway, it all seems to be going very well. Uh, Do please remember him in your prayers. But now let us ask for God's help as we uh, bring this protracted series in Luke's Gospel to a close this morning. Let's bow, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word and holding it in our hands. And we pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands, so that as we read about you in the pages of Scripture, our hearts might be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love, our minds might be filled with your truth, and our lives might be equipped to serve and glorify your name. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, do have your Bible open and also the bulletin that was given to you when you arrived because that gives you an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. Julia Esquivel is um, a Christian teacher, pastoral worker and poet. Uh, She was born in Guatemala in 1930. Uh, As a young woman, she witnessed the devastating political violence unleashed in Guatemala by a series of absolutely brutal dictators. Thousands of people, many thousands of people, from different ethnic minorities were brutally murdered. Hundreds of villages were quite literally wiped off the map. Uh, The entire nation was kind of collectively traumatised by massive and often arbitrary brutality, and it went on for about three decades. But through it all, Julia Esquivel maintained a faithful and outspoken witness for Jesus Christ. She brought the healing and the hope of the gospel to the people who suffered the most. And as a result of her ministry, she was continually harassed by both the police and the armed forces, Uh, She narrowly escaped kidnapping, arrest, and ultimately escaped assassination. And so eventually she was forced to leave the country and live in exile. But in 1980, she wrote a poem with a rather strange title, Threatened with the Resurrection. Now, the idea of the resurrection being a threat sounds rather strange to our ears, doesn't it? I mean, isn't the resurrection good news? Well, yes, of course it is. But the resurrection is also a threat to anybody who wants to continue living as if the cross of Christ is the end of the story. So consider for a moment the disciples in Luke's Gospel. The women on their way to the tomb were were planning to perform one final act of love for Jesus. And they would probably then return home and their lives would continue pretty much as before. No doubt Peter and the rest would eventually return to their fishing boats and their nets and their various occupations. But for the first disciples, the resurrection changed everything. There was no way back to the old life. 
The road back to Galilee was blocked by the resurrection. The resurrection actually catapulted them into a completely new category of discipleship. Now that's what Julia Esquivel was talking about when she wrote her poem. Her message was that faithful discipleship in Guatemala was indeed a risky business. Things would have been much simpler and safer if she weren't compelled by the resurrection to spread the gospel and speak out bravely against all forms of evil. But you see, she understood that the full message of Easter, the message of the cross and the resurrection, is both a message of joy and also a challenge. Yes, of course, it is the announcement of God's tremendous victory over sin and death and the devil. But friends, it is also a call to radical, dangerous and even painful discipleship. And so as we think about our own lives this morning, I want you to ask yourself, am I living as if the cross is the end of the story? Or has the resurrection catapulted me into a life of radical, risky, sacrificial discipleship? Now to help us, we're going to be asking the question, is Jesus really alive? Because that's the crucial issue, isn't it? Obviously, if he is, the implications for our lives are simply limitless. But is Jesus really alive? And how can this passage in Luke actually help us? I think one of the most astonishing things in this very precious text is that Luke shows us that the disciples had no expectation whatsoever that Jesus would rise from the dead. When the women went to the tomb on that first Easter morning, there was absolutely no sense of, yes, okay, well, Jesus won't be there because he told us. They were absolutely stunned when they arrived at the tomb and found the stone rolled away and the body gone. None of the disciples were expecting it. And yet, when we get to the end of the passage, you might like to put your nose on verse 34. When we get to the end of the passage, we find them saying, It is true. The Lord has risen. So put those two things together. At the beginning, they can't believe it's happened. And at the end, they're celebrating the fact that it has. What on earth made the difference? Three things. First, the empty tomb in verses 1 to 3 and verses 9 to 12. Now this has always been one of the key pieces of evidence for the Christian belief in the resurrection. The body had gone. Not only did the women see the empty tomb, but in verse 12... Peter saw it too. And the interesting thing is that the women didn't understand it. In verse uh, 4, they were wondering about this. 
And Peter, right at the end of verse 12, saw the empty tomb and as he went away, he was wondering to himself what had happened. So you see, they couldn't explain it. They didn't understand. But there was no doubt about the facts. The body was gone. The tomb was empty. Now, if you still have doubts about the resurrection yourself, one of the questions you have to ask is, well, how do I explain the empty tomb? I mean, if Jesus did not rise as the disciples said, what on earth happened to the body? Many people, of course, respond to this in the same way that the disciples did at the end of verse 11. It's a lovely detail, this. It makes one smile, doesn't it? Look at the end of verse 11. The disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, that's very down-to-earth, isn't it? I like that. And many people today, you see, react exactly like that when Christians talk about the resurrection. It seems like sheer nonsense to them. But the important thing to realise is that the first disciples were not willing to believe it either. They were only finally convinced by the weight of evidence and it is still the same for us today. The arguments, of course, are well known to us. Uh, For a start, if the body wasn't there, who took it? If it was the enemies of Christ... All they had to do was to produce the body to put a stop to the message of the resurrection from spreading. They could have said, here are the remains of Jesus Christ. What these men are saying is sheer nonsense. But the fact that they didn't do that was because they couldn't. The Jewish story, uh, which you'll read about in Matthew's Gospel, was that the disciples took the body. But the problem with that, of course, is that they had neither the reason nor the opportunity to do it because the tomb was heavily guarded and it was sealed. And are we seriously to believe that they would have given up their lives, as most of them did, for something they knew to be untrue? That they would be willing to be martyred for a lie? Would you do that? You see, martyrs do not die for something they don't believe. Now, these people were firmly convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. How do you explain their courage and their conviction if it was all just a huge hoax? No, they were persuaded that the tomb was empty. And the only explanation that stands up and has done now for more than 2,000 years is that the claim of Jesus Christ to be the eternal Son of God is true and that no power of death or darkness had any authority over him whatsoever. He is risen, the angel said. He is alive forevermore. But the evidence alone, of course, wasn't enough. Important as it was, there needed to be further confirmation. And so in this passage, the empty tomb is followed by the Master's promise in verses 4 to 8. 
Now at the beginning of verse 4, we're told that the women were utterly confused. They were wondering about the empty tomb. They don't know what's happened. So in verse 4, God sends his messengers. Later in the passage, we're told they're angels. And of course, the word angel in Greek is the same word. It means messenger. So God sends two of them to bring his word of revelation into the fog of their confusion. Now remember from the beginning of the Gospel that Luke has carefully selected his material from eyewitnesses that he interviewed. And here he's reminding us of something that happened right at the very beginning. Of course it's a very long time now since we began our journey through the Gospel of Luke, more than six years in fact. But if you cast your mind back you'll remember that in those very early chapters of the Gospel, there were a number of angel messengers, weren't there? Zachariah and Elizabeth were told by an angel that they would have a son in their old age. And in due course, John the Baptist was born. Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel, who told her that she would give birth to Jesus, the saviour of the world. And the shepherds in the fields were told by a multitude of angels that the birth had actually happened. Today they said in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now why am I saying all that? Well the point is that in each case, It's not the supernatural appearance that made things clear. No, it was their words. And so here the angels in verse 4 haven't simply come to dazzle the women with their gleaming clothing and their supernatural appearance. No, no, they've come to instruct them. Because you see, in Scripture... Angels bring the words of God to explain the works of God. And here the angels remind the women of something they ought to have known. Verse 5. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you. You see... In declaring that Christ has risen and is alive, they remind these women of the word that Jesus had already spoken to them back in Galilee. In other words, the resurrection is the fulfilment of the Master's promise. We've already seen frequently on the journey to Jerusalem that Jesus had taught the disciples what the angels say to the women in verse 7. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Well, now it's happened. So the angels are saying, you see, look, if it was true that you saw him delivered into the hands of sinful men... And if it was true that you saw him crucified, 
then it is equally true that he has been raised on the third day. And that's today. But you see, their own ideas of what the Messiah should be were so dominant and so wide of the mark that they missed the reality completely. Some of them might have thought that he would return at the end of the age, but a physical resurrection, well, that was completely beyond their credibility. And yet all the time, those words that Jesus had spoken in Galilee were stored in the soil of their memories. And now, as the angels were speaking, the light begins to dawn. Verse 8. Then they remembered his words. Now, I might be talking uh, to somebody this morning, and everything about Jesus, who he is, his death on the cross, his resurrection, it might just be beginning to make sense. But when the women went back to the apostles and told them what the angels had said and told them what they'd seen and that the tomb was empty, their words seemed like nonsense. Now why? Why was that? Well, it was because they had forgotten what he had said. And why did they forget it? Because they had never understood it. So the angels, you see, they had to come from God and say, this had to happen. It's part of God's plan. If he sent his son to die for our sins, then he will raise him from the dead. He must rise again, for death can have no control over Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of death. That's what he taught That's what he proved in his miracles. So you see, the resurrection was the inevitable consequence of the cross. The Son of God laid down his life and the Son of God took it up again. Is Jesus really alive? The empty tomb says, yes, he is. Is Jesus really alive? His own promises say, yes, he is. Is Jesus really alive? Well, thirdly, the personal encounter says, yes, he is. And that's verses 13 to 35, which is as far as we'll get this morning. I think these verses are one of the Uh, greatest stories in the whole of the Gospel. Now, if this uh, person called Cleopas in verse 18 is the same person that John names as Clopas in his own Gospel, chapter 19, verse 25, and it seems highly likely that he is, well, then it is equally likely that the other disciple with him was his wife, who John names as Mary. So what's happening here is that Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas are travelling home to Emmaus. Um, It's late on the Sunday afternoon and they've got a longish walk in front of them because Luke tells us, doesn't he, in verse 13, uh, that Emmaus was 
seven miles or 11 kilometers from Jerusalem. Now you see, Luke is interested in them because they are a representative picture of how people who began Easter morning discouraged come to the assurance that Jesus is alive forevermore. In other words, they are a picture of us. Now some of us uh, in church this morning might have our own doubts about the resurrection and you might be saying to yourself, well, you know, I'm just not sure whether it's true. If it is true, I see that it means that uh, he must be the Son of God, I've got to submit to his authority, he would have to be the Lord of my life, that's obvious. But before I do that, I need to be sure, because it would change everything, wouldn't it? So, how do you get from casual interest through discouragement to unshakable conviction? And Luke, you see, tells us this marvellous story as a picture of the personal encounter that everybody needs to have with the Lord Jesus Christ to come to the place of unshakable conviction that Jesus really is alive. You see, when we first meet uh, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas, they are battling with uncertainty. Have a look at verse 14. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Now notice what comes next. They stood still, their faces downcast. Now you see, friends, that actually is a picture of life without the risen Jesus. Um, That sort of life has its moments, of course, it's not all bad. But ultimately, the verdict on the life that does not know the risen Lord Jesus personally is that its face is downcast because they have no assurance of God's presence and love and here, Mr and Mrs Cleopas were wrestling with a sorrow that they just couldn't sort out. And now they had to come to terms with the fact that Jesus was no longer around to explain it to them. How were they ever going to find out why it had all happened this way? What could it all mean? And so the stranger draws alongside them in verse 15 and walked with them. Now this is very interesting because of course they are retracing the path that they had travelled with Jesus in triumph just one week before on Palm Sunday. But verse 16 says they were kept from recognising him. Now we don't know what that really means. Uh, Does it mean that they were kept from recognising him by supernatural power? Does it mean that they were so overcome with sorrow that they were blinded by their tears? 
Or does it mean that they were prevented from recognising him because of unbelief? That it never even occurred to them for one moment that this could be Jesus? Well, we don't really know. All we do know is that they were not aware of who it was that was with them. And my friends, isn't that so true to life? Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're, you're battling with a huge problem. Some great sorrow that's come flooding into your life. And you're a Christian and you've asked God to come and help you. And I think it's very easy, isn't it, when we've prayed prayers like that, that when God does come alongside us, perhaps through another Christian, just not to recognise him at all. We're so preoccupied with the problem, we're so overcome with sorrow, that we don't even realise that Jesus is actually with us. We know he said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, but we're afraid because we don't recognise him. We don't see that he actually is in the problem with us. Now notice here how the Lord Jesus intervenes. He moves them out of battling with the uncertainty into recounting the facts. Stage one, face the uncertainty. Stage two, recounting the facts. So middle of verse 18, they say to him, are you only a visitor to to Jerusalem? And do not know the things that have happened there in these days. And notice the lovely question in verse 19. What things? He asked. Now isn't that gracious of the Lord Jesus? And it's saying, you see, that when we come to Jesus with our own sorrows and our own troubles, Jesus says, tell me all about it. I want to know what things are troubling you. Verses 19 to 24 are actually an ingenious summary of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now actually, they'd got a pretty good grasp of what was happening. They had heard the teaching of Jesus He was a prophet, powerful in word. They'd seen his miracles. He was powerful indeed before God and all the people. They knew the reason for his execution. He was handed over by the chief priests and the rulers. They'd actually seen the crucifixion happen because they'd been eyewitnesses. But they'd also had this great hope in their hearts, verse 21. It was the hope that Jesus might be the Messiah. That he really was the promised Redeemer. And it it all seemed to have gone so terribly wrong. And now it's the third day and 
there's this tremendous mystery. Um, The tomb in which we know he was buried is empty and some of the women have come back with this extraordinary story that the body's not there. They'd seen a vision of angels, verse 23, who said that he was alive. And although we've investigated it, we actually haven't seen him. Now, friends, think about this. This actually is amazing, isn't it? There they are, staring Jesus in the face and saying, we haven't seen him, it's terribly disappointing. Now, aren't we like that so very often in our own lives? Why isn't God with me in this? We haven't seen him. But he's there all the time. Now, that's the situation here. But the facts alone don't explain the significance. It's not enough to see that the tomb is empty. You need something more than that if you're going to become a Christian. If you're going to become a Christian, the facts require an explanation. I mean, just think about it. Most churches today still do have a cross. We have one here. But by itself, a cross on the wall or wherever it is means nothing unless you know the meaning of it. Unless you know who was nailed to it and why he was nailed to it, it's meaningless. And uh, to see an empty tomb with a, a few strips of linen cloth is meaningless without an explanation. Now, if we want to understand the works of God, we must have the words of God. And so here, the Lord Jesus takes them from facing their uncertainty to recounting the facts to understanding the scriptures. Now, that is actually the key thing, the most important thing, verses 25 to 27. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, friends, that is a very important verse. Because it says that our foolishness is always shown by our slowness to believe what the Bible says. You see, we're living in a culture, aren't we, that says, oh well, we're much too wise these days to believe what the Bible says. We're way more sophisticated than they were back then. And the Bible's response to that is, that just shows how foolish you are. You cannot be a bigger fool than to dismiss Scripture. Because that is the word of God's truth. And if, you, if you're slow to believe the scriptures, well then, according to the Bible, you really are extremely foolish. But that, you see, is the hardness of the human heart, isn't it? In 2018 in Cape Town, I think we're tempted to believe, aren't we, that it would have been so much easier for us to believe in Jesus if we'd been there and seen the crucifixion and seen the risen Lord and had this marvellous interview with him on the Emmaus Road. 
But you see, Luke is saying, no, no, it's not like that at all. Jesus, notice this, Jesus took them to the scriptures before he disclosed his identity to them. He always reveals himself to people in the Bible because he wants their confidence and our confidence to be rooted in God's unchanging truth and not in some subjective experience. Because there's a world of difference between those two foundations. And so he takes them to the scriptures, verse 27, beginning with Moses. Moses, that's just shorthand for the first five books of the Bible and then all the prophets. And he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now can I say to you that if your faith is grounded in what the scriptures say about Jesus Christ rather than in your own subjective experience, that will be a really strong faith that will weather any storm that comes your way. But if you're relying only on your own ideas about Jesus and you never root yourself in the word of God, well, when the wind blows, you will fall flat on your face. So Jesus takes them to the scriptures. He emphasises to them the necessity of his suffering. You see, they were still thinking about it as a terrible tragedy, And Jesus reveals it to them as God's master plan. And notice that they they haven't even grasped the true identity of the figure at the centre of the drama. They said to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet. We had hoped that uh, he was the Messiah, but we don't have any conviction that he is. And Jesus takes them to the Bible and he says, this is where you get your conviction. And he shows them from the Bible that he is the eternal son of God. Now my friend, if you don't get the identity of Jesus right, you will get everything else wrong. And we know from verse 32 that while Jesus was explaining the scriptures to them and showing how they all pointed to him that their hearts were burning within them. See, Jesus was preaching himself from the Old Testament. And as they heard it, there was this tremendous sense of of joy and, and of wonder. You know, their hearts were set on fire that God could do such a glorious thing. And if you want that sort of Christianity, if that's the faith that you are looking for, the way to meet the risen Lord Jesus is in the Bible. See, Jesus could easily have said, couldn't he, right at the very beginning, look, I'm the risen Christ. Open your eyes and see. Why didn't he do that? Because he wanted to show them and us that the foundation is always the same in every generation. He reveals himself to us through the Bible. 
That means, of course, that if you never open your Bible, you will never see Christ. That's what it means. And please notice that it's only when he's done that that Jesus moves them to the last stage. Their eyes are opened. So they begin by facing uncertainty. Jesus moves them into recounting the facts. Then he reveals himself to them in the scriptures, explaining who he is, why he came, and then only then he opens their eyes. Verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going farther. Isn't that an intriguing verse, by the way? You see, Jesus never forces his presence on you. It's actually a very profound thing that we're being taught here. You see, there is an option. And many of us are going to miss so much of what might be ours in Jesus Christ because we allow him to carry on walking ahead of us. He sometimes gives us the option. Do you want me? Or shall I go on? But you see, once the heart is really burning, once we're really hooked on the Bible as the word of God, and we see the wonder of God's plan through history and its perfect fulfilment in Christ, and we marvel at God's goodness and grace, once you have a burning heart, you long for more of his company. And that's why in verse 29... They say, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. And you see, wherever Jesus is invited, he gladly enters, as he does here. He went in to stay with them. And then it happened, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them, Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. The key moment, you see, was the breaking of the bread. That's clear, isn't it, again from verse 35, right at the end of the passage Sarah read. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Now that wasn't just a familiar action. It was a very vivid reenactment of everything that he had been teaching them on the road. And when he broke the bread, it suddenly clicked. The penny dropped. And they said to themselves, yes, of course. When he broke the bread for the 5,000 up in Galilee, he was using it as a parable for giving himself up for the sins of the whole world. And of course he did the same thing, didn't he, in the upper room the night before he died. And so now, when he broke bread in Emmaus, they suddenly saw what it all meant. They saw the risen Lord with their own eyes. And they realised that he'd he'd triumphed over everything, over sin and death and the devil, and that he really is the sovereign king, God in 
human form. And it all made sense. Now, what about you? Does it make sense to you? No other person in history has ever offered themselves for the redemption of the world. And the resurrection proves that his sacrifice was accepted by God. And it means, you see, that this Easter morning, the way is open for us into God's eternal kingdom. The two disciples said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And this is interesting, isn't it? Although it was dark and they've already walked 11 kilometres or 7 miles, verse 33, what did they do? In the dark, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. Well, of course they did. And how different that return journey was. And when they arrived, they found the 11 and those with them assembled together, probably in the upper room, saying, well, what were they saying? It's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared by this time to Simon as well. And the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Dear friends, the Lord has risen. He is alive. And if he's opened your eyes to see it, then the road back to your old life is completely blocked. And that's the reality that Julia Esquivel was talking about in her poem. The resurrection catapults every true believer into a totally new sphere of discipleship because Jesus is the Lord of your life. He died for you. He rose for you. He's coming back for you. The only question is, do you believe it? Let's have a moment of quiet. Is Jesus Christ really alive? He is not here. He has risen. Lord Jesus, thank you for the evidence in history of the empty tomb and the risen Lord. Thank you for the evidence in scripture of your promises of the fulfilment of everything that the Old Testament was pointing to and this marvellous record in the New Testament of these eyewitness accounts of those who were there, who saw and heard. And thank you that it is still possible for us to have that personal encounter, even here this morning, in the quietness of these few moments. 
So we open our hearts and our minds to you and we pray that you will reveal yourself to us at our point of need. Reveal yourself as Saviour, Lord and God. And whether it's for the first time or whether it's something we've done before, we want to bow before you this morning and say, Lord Jesus, I submit myself to your authority. Cleanse me from my sin. Come and live within me by the power of your risen life. Change me from the inside out. Lord Jesus, take the throne of my life as my Saviour and my King. Thank you that you have said that those who come to you, you will never turn away. And we can go from this place, even this morning, saying, it is true, the Lord has risen, and I've met him for myself. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.